This morning we're going to um, go over and look at and study, I think, one of the most powerful passages uh, in Scripture, uh, because it, it talks about something that we take for granted and something that maybe we um, have some kind of an understanding in, but it may not be a full, complete knowledge of, and that is when we're talking about God's love. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about love, we might get that, that feeling that we think that love is more like a feel-good, mushy, kind of sentimental feeling kind of thing, and that's what love is. And if that's what you think love is, that's the love that Hollywood will portray to us and that want us to believe that that's what it's like. You get this, this feeling, and you're overcome with this powerful sense of love, and so then you love somebody. And then all of a sudden, seven years later, that feeling leaves, and so you're out of love. And you move on and look for that feeling somewhere else. But you know, um, the love that the Bible talks about, that Jesus expressed to the church, is more real than anything you can imagine. It's not something tangible that you can put your hand on and touch, or you might not think it is. But I will tell you, it's more real than the house that you live in. And it's tougher than nails. And it goes the distance when we don't want to, and that's God's love. And this morning, when we talk about love, love is a special and complicated emotion, which is a little bit difficult to understand. Love is. It's just not altogether that easy to wrap our heads around. And it a lot of times we think it revolves around our heart. But the truth is, love doesn't come from our heart. It comes from our brain. There's a little chemical signal that's sent out from your brain that says you're to love, and so you do it. It doesn't. Oh, man, Valentine's is coming. I hate it. You know, because it's all the heart. No, it's the brain. But, you know, the artists, the poets, the songwriters, the painters, they epitomize the heart as the love symbol. But it's really the brain. So this year for Christmas, I mean for uh, Valentine's Day, find a brain and give that to your sweetheart. You know? You can write on the inside something like, I've been thinking about you. You guys must be frozen this morning or something. <laughs> Your wood's wet or something. Anyway. All right. So, you know, in the ancient Greek language, which the New Testament is written in originally, um, they had a way of dealing with love that is probably far superior to what, how we deal with love. Because when they talk about love, they use different words to describe love rather than the word love. They don't just say love for everything. They use different words for that, and there are, are four Greek words that, they, that the Greeks used to express love. Three of them are found in the Bible. Now, what they also do is they take those four words and use them in about 13 different combinations to really be very expressive about what they're doing. But we're just going to look at the four real brief, and I'm going to tell you what those four are. And so the first one is the one that's not found in the Bible, but it... It has such an uh, important role in our lives, and it, it dictates a lot of this culture, our culture's 
um, thought patterns. And that word is, the first Greek word for love is eros. And that's the love that you have between a husband and a wife. It is sexual by nature in content. And so um, in, if, if they wrote the Old Testament in Greek, which it was originally written in Hebrew, but if they would have come to that part where it was talking about Adam and Eve and Adam knowing Eve, it would have said Adam eros Eve, loved her sexually. But it's not just the act of sex because there's a whole lot more involved with it. There's a longing to be with that one person. There is a, a caring that goes deeper than what you do for caring for your children. And it, it's in God's perfect design of it, it was meant for a husband and wife in that relationship that, that God put them together in. And so the reason why we mention it is because it has such uh, a big impact on us and in our world. Matter of fact, the word eros is the root word where we get erotic from in our English language. The next word we're going to look at, the second word for love is, that we're going to examine this morning is filio. And filio is more of that brotherly love kind of thing. It's like you, you have this, these friendships with people that you would call your friends, your brothers in Christ, your sisters in Christ. That's the filial love that you have right here in this room for each other. There is filio going on, and we, we express that love to one another as though we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you like to treat your brothers and sisters in Christ by, you know, hey, I love you. Others of you are more this way. Hey, I love you. And you bring it in. Well, the third word that we're going to talk about this morning, or look at briefly, is the word storge. And that is the Greek word that defines love, which naturally occurs within a family. Like it's the, the love that siblings have for each other. It's the love that a mom and dad have for their kids. Um, parents have it for each other, and the kids have it for the parents. And the really great thing about storge, when you think about that word and the way they used it in the New Testament, particularly to describe love, is that it also talks about friendships that are deeper and more meaningful than the filial love. Storge is this relationship that goes much deeper, and you will see people through thick and thin with you. And, and so it's, it's a family kind of a thing. And the place where it exists at its highest level of love is in the marriage. It's between a husband and wife. And it's the most amazing thing when the storge, filio, and eros loves are functioning as God intended for them to do in a, in a marriage. But there's one more, and it's one that we're going to look at this morning, and it's kind of the frosting on the cake of all of this, and it is agape love. And that's the love that God has for us. Now, agape love is the kind of love that helps us. Uh, it's unconditional by nature, first of all. Let me say that. It, it is not something that, that is predicated upon anything somebody else does for you. It is simply the act, act of loving. It's not a feeling. It really helps to have feelings attached with it, but primarily, we know this love from God because it is brought to us through the act of what God has done in us and for us. And so, the one place where you will find um, eros, philios, 
um, storge and agape love culminated in all of its perfection is in a godly, healthy marriage. That's, where, that's the only place all four of them come together. It is the only place where all four of those expressions of love that we find in the, in the New Testament coming together. Now, agape love, it would sound something like this if we were to really express it the way that God wants us to understand it. It would be like this. God so loved agape, the world that he gave his son. It, it didn't feel good to God to send his son to earth, but he did it because he loved the people. Jesus Christ so loved agape that he gave his life. He, he didn't want to die. He didn't go like, choose me. But out of his love, he did. A mother who stays up all night long with a sick baby, she does it out of love. She doesn't want to stay up all night with that sick baby. She'd rather go get some sleep. She'd rather go in the bedroom and kick her husband out of bed and go, you go deal with Junior. But she has a love for that child that is agape, unconditional. So... Love is the distinctive character of a life in Christ in relationship to other Christ followers and to all humanity. And the loving thing that we do may, may not always be easy. And true, love is not mushy and sentimental, but it often will cost us something when it's genuine love. And the only way we will know genuine love is as we step into and express and know what it's like to be loved by God and then to love God. Because once we've been loved by God and we know what it's like to be loved by God, and then we start to love God, then we're at the place where we can start loving people the way God's called us to love them. And so this morning, we're going to be spending our time in John, 1 John chapter 4 and verses 7 through 11. Let me read verses 7 and 8 to you and we'll get started. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, look, we, we really need to begin by admitting that the subject of love is not like any other subject. It's not like science, where you do some experiments and you figure it out. It's not like math, where the equation, this plus this equals this. It, it's, it's not something that you can really put your hands on and really go like, this is exactly what love looks like. But I will tell you, when you experience the love of God, you know you've experienced the love of God. How do you know God loves you? Somebody's going to ask you that. Somebody's going to say, how do you know God loves you? How do you respond with that? What is the, the, the culminating fact that shows us that we have been loved by God? And, and the first reason that, that we know this love of God is that God is the source of the love. It doesn't culminate. It doesn't come from somewhere else. It's just like radiate, light radiates from the sun and love radiates from God's very nature. Love is the word that involves your emotions, but it's more than that in the biblical concept of agape. 
And it's a love that is unconditional, a love that seeks the highest good for the one who is loved. A love of total commitment. That's what God has towards you when he sent his son to die on the cross. He was totally committed to you. When God loves you in the way the Bible says it, it's not like I love you if or I love you because. God just loves because that's who God is. And we're sinners. And God's love for us does not have anything to do with something that's in us because God loved us just because that's who God is. And God's love is motivated by Him and by not by who we are. There's nothing lovely about us. There's nothing within us that would cause a perfect and holy God to express His love to us. So why on earth would God... Do that. Express his love to us. Because it's his nature. It's his nature. The second reason we're commanded to love one another in these verses is that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So really the question you want to ask yourself this morning is, what's your relationship like with God? Do you know God? How do you know God? What are the ways in which you tangibly are known by God? Because it says two things. They've been born of God and they know God. If God is to his nature to love everyone who's been born of God, then those who partake of God's love know what it means to love. In this passage here, the word knows It conveys the meaning of having an intimate relationship with God. To know God means to be rightly related to God. God's love produces genuine change in us. When we respond to God's love, we're able to become loving people. Now, in John's writings, he he describes God in three different ways. He says that God is spirit, which we know is true. God is light, and now God is love. And when we unpack the statement, we find its meaning and implications. First, we can't reverse the statement and say love is God, because not all love is born of God. I mean, the things that are masquerades as love and the things that come to us that say that they're love are not love. God cannot fall in love. He is the reason for love. And the reason why God cannot fall into love is the same reason why water cannot be wet. It's already wet. Some of you are going like, what? All right. God is love in the same way that water is wet. Are you with me? All right. By the way, when we talk about God's love, we're not talking about an attribute of God. We're talking about God. And so the second thing about God's love is that it's more than mere emotions and goodwill. It is his settled disposition toward us that flows from his being and nature and divine attributes. Human love, our love, is essentially... A response love. Do you know what I mean by that? A response love? Because I 
dropped $50 into your pocket, you love me now. You respond to what I did. If I give you a hug, most of you that are, you know, have a love language of touch will respond with a hug. Um, and so it's a responsive thing. Some, some of you, when I hug you, you slug me. But you're still saying I love you. And so it's responsive by nature. Human love is responsive love. Agape love, though, comes first. Let me explain what I mean by that. Agape love creates value in its object, whether there is any intrinsic value there or not. Okay, so the sun shines on the earth not because the earth is the earth, but the sun shines on the earth because the sun is the sun. So God's love, God loves me because he is he, not because I am I. He loves me because of who he is, not because of who I am. There's nothing in me that would create <laughs> something for God to love. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? God, you got to love me. Look what I'm bringing to the table. I'm packing it all in. I got it going on. You are so lucky to have me, Jesus. You just need to count your lucky stars, you know, the ones you created. <laughs> now, we know things about God that are true, but we may not know that truth or how that truth is true. So let me explain this. For instance, we know that God creates, right? He rules, and God judges. That is to say, it means that love is one of his activities. But to say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity, even his judgment. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, which he does, he judges in love. All that he does is to the expression of his nature, which is love. Now, verse 9 gives us the ground for God's love. We're going to look at 9 and 10 together here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To manifest something means to make it visible and known. The love of God was manifested and made known among us, in that God not only sent His Son, but He came with a mission and a divine purpose. So God expressed Himself to all of humanity by manifesting His Son in the flesh as a human being. He was 100% God, and He was 100% man, and we know Him as Jesus Christ. And that's the manifestation of God among us. The greatness of God's love is shown in five ways as captured in, in these verses. First, notice it was God's love that caused the mission of sending the Son. The words God sent. Okay, We can stop right there because if there's ever going to be any reconciliation, the person 
who did the offending should be the one making the move. So in other words, because we have offended God, and we've offended God on all levels, don't kid yourself, we have done that, we should be the ones that are coming to God and making reconciliation. We're the ones that should be coming to God and saying something to the effect, hey, I did this, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? But we are so stubborn, and we are so full of ourselves, that it took God to step up to the plate, and he's the one that says, you know what? I'm not going to wait for the rebelliousness humanity to send word that they're in the, uh, uh, on the terms of their reconciliation. So God commenced the negotiation of reconciliation himself. He's the one, when it says he sent, he's the one that sent. Started to get the ball rolling in reconciliation with us. Second, noticed whom God sent. His only son. God didn't send Abraham. He didn't send Moses. He didn't send one of the prophets or an angel. He sent Jesus, who is his only son. And our sins caused such a mess in this world that the only one that could deal with it was the Son of God himself. He's the only one that could extricate us out of our mess. He's the only one that could do something to claim us from where we were to being what we were supposed to be. That's what God did in his love. He sent Jesus to rescue us. Third, the greatness of God's love is revealed in the purpose of sending the Son so that we might live through him. Our only hope of eternal life is forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. Now, like last week we were talking about testing every spirit because there are spirits who are going to tell you that there is another way to get to God other than through Jesus Christ. But, but the Bible absolutely makes it absolutely clear that there is only one, one way and one person to the Father. Remember? John chapter 14. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's the one. He's the only one. So there aren't a lot of different paths to God. There's only one. The fifth, did I get the fourth one? No, the fourth, the greatness of God's love is that it originates with God and not with us. God first bestowed his love on us and then we responded to his invitation of love. You know, sometimes I hear, and, and they're probably new in faith, but they say something like, you know what? I'm so glad I found Jesus. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you, fool. Come on now. You know that's to be true. You know that when you start to think about it, if you really think about it, it isn't like we went out searching for God like we're looking for an Easter egg underneath a rock or something. And we found it. And look at me, lucky, lucky me, lucky God. It's God's going like... Hey, Ken, Ken, Kenny, he gets your attention. He calls you. His name 
is, is God and he calls your name and you respond to his call, his act of love towards you. You didn't love God first. God loved you first and then you responded to God's love, number four. Number five, the greatness of God's love is demonstrated by its cost. It costs something. It costs Jesus his life. It costs Jesus, cost Jesus his throne. And, and it says here that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do you like that word? That word, propitiation, is a $5 stained glass word. <laughs> and we all use it every day. Right? No. It's not like we get up in the morning, we're running late to work, we're running out the door, and we look at our clock, and it's already 8 o'clock. We were supposed to be at work at 10 to 8, and we're already 10 minutes late, and we're just going out the door, so it means we're going to be 20 minutes late at best. And on our way out the door, we don't, as we're running for late for work, we're going to be late. The boss is going to be angry and mad at us, and so we have this thought. On the way to work as we're late, I better find a way to make propitiation for my boss. All right, let me help you out a little bit. So propitiation means to appease someone's wrath. Did anybody here when you were in high school or college take Greek mythology? Put your hand up. You guys, man, yeah, okay, some people are going like, wait a minute, did I take that class? I slept through that class, does that mean I took it? Yeah, I took it, I took it. So, in Greek mythology, if you remember, all the Greek gods are always angry at man. Zeus is always angry. Athena, she is just ticked off. You know, Hades wants to burn everybody up. He's angry. So what has to happen in Greek mythology is that men are always making propitiation, in other words, trying to appease the wrath of the gods. Now here's the difference between Greek mythology and false religion is they're always trying to appease God. And what God says, the real true God, the God of the Bible says, I have my anger, I have my wrath on sin and on sinful people. I am angry and mad at them, and I will pour my wrath out on them, and somebody needs to make propitiation, and by the way, it ain't you. And we're all going like, now wait a minute. Just 30 seconds ago, you were talking to us about God's love. Isn't that what you just said to us? And I go, uh-huh. That is exactly what I'm talking about. Now you're talking about God's anger against sinful people, sinful human beings. Yep, I'm talking about that too. So why doesn't God just take his magic wand and just wave it over everybody and just forgive their sins? I mean, wouldn't that make sense to us? Because then it's like we all get a clean slate and we get to start over and God can just keep his magic wand in his back pocket ready to wave it over us when we mess up again. Because that's the way it should be. Well, that is about as um, effective and feel good 
as this whole thing. You remember back in 2012, a guy by the name of James Holmes in Aurora, Colorado, he murdered 12 people in a theater and he wounded 51 other people. And now what we're saying is that if, if what we want God to do is just wave his wand over our sins and just let it go, it's not a big deal. There's no propitiation that needs to be made. The wrath doesn't need to be appeased. It's like the state of Colorado going to James Holmes and saying like, look, you know what? You killed 12 people. You know, that was really bad. And you wounded 51 others. And that wasn't quite as bad. And you should probably spend the rest of your life in prison. But here's our magic wand. And we're going to wave it over you. And all is forgiven. You're a free man. You go. To do that would be the most heinous violation of justice that the parents of those kids, the family members, they would say, what are you thinking? Justice demands punishment. And so for us, if we were to have God do the same thing for our sins, it would be a denial of the seriousness of sin, a gross violation of his justice. Sin is so bad that it leads to a state of affairs where God, the Son of God himself, ended up being crucified for our sins. And that is called propitiation. It's the word that includes six things in God's definition. So here they are. Propitiation, the definition of it for God is it includes God's holiness, God's holiness, his wrath, his justice, his mercy, his love, and his grace. So why does there need to be propitiation in the first place? Because all sin is, all sin is an affront to God. It's, a, it's an attack on his holiness. And that's what happens. And so God's wrath is settled and, dis, and the disposition against all sin. God is angry with sin and he's angry with sinners. Really? Do you ever hear of a guy by the name of John Edwards? He did a sermon one time, and it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you've never heard that message or seen it, look it up, go on your computer, look it up online, and read it. It is worth the read. But here's the deal about that. God is an angry God with sin and sinners. And you're going, but wait a minute. We've just been talking about this whole thing of God's love. God loves us. You told us that. And I'm going to tell you, yes, I did. But now you're going like, now you're telling me that God is angry with us. And I'm going to say, yes, I am telling you that. But here's the deal. God can be angry with sinners and love them at the same time. That's the difference between God and us. Because when we're angry at somebody for their sin, we certainly don't want to love them. We want to smack them. We want them to feel the full wrath of our anger towards them. But God, even in His anger, He loves us. So, the problem is, is that sin violates God's law. And His law demands that justice be done. 
God is just. He must punish sin. But God is also, get this, He's merciful. He's willing that sinners not receive all that they deserve for their sin. Even more, God is love. And His love extends to all people. God desires the salvation of all people. But there is nothing sinners can do to mend or, or make right to get God's forgiveness of their sin. You can't do anything. And this is where God's grace comes into the picture. God does something for us that we could never do for ourselves. He pays the price for our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, He became our substitute and took the wrath of God against our sin upon Himself, thus satisfying God's justice, appeasing God's wrath in payment for our sin. In Jesus' death on the cross, God's holiness, His justice, His wrath, His mercy, His love, and His grace all converged on the cross with Jesus. And that's what sets being a Christ follower apart from every other religion on the earth. They don't have anyone or anybody to appease the wrath of God for them. And so they try to do it in their own merit, by their own good works. One of the 11th century preachers, teachers, poets, I think he did poetry, he was a philosopher, Christ follower, Saint Anselm said this, Only man should make the sacrifice for his sins because his is the offender. But only God could make the sacrifice for sins since he demanded it. Jesus, as God and man, is the only Savior in whom the should and the could are united. The Father... Gave the Son, and the Son gave Himself. The Father sent the Son, and the Son came. The Father did not lay on the Son a cross He was reluctant to bear. The Son did not extract from the Father a salvation He was reluctant to give. It's all out of God's love. So, what is propitiation all about anyway? It's all about God giving himself in his son for our sins. God himself in his holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself in his holy love undertook the propitiation. God himself in the person of Jesus died to make propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins only, but for the entire world. The initiative is from God the response must be from us. God first moves towards us so that we can move towards Him. God first loved us so that we might be able to love Him. If you get nothing else out of the message today, if you hear me say nothing else, these next three sentences are the most important thing you could hear today. So listen. No one 
has sinned him or self, himself or herself beyond the love of God. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he loves you right now. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any less than he loves you right now. God's love isn't predicated on his feelings or what he sees in us or about us. It is because God's nature is love that we have the full extent of his love and it will never fade or diminish from our sight. Is there anything greater than the love of God? Absolutely not. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You can't love God the way you ought until you understand the love of God for you. Now, I want you to I want you to focus on that little word ought. Because we don't maybe exactly know what it means in the context of this verse. Beloved, if God so loved you, we also ought to love one another. There's a meaning behind that in the original language that we don't pick up here because we see the word ought. And so we don't know how to rightly translate that word for us. But what it means in this context right here, it means obligation. There are some people in the faith community, larger faith community, who view loving others all the time as optional. I love them today. I don't feel like loving them tomorrow. I'm not going to. It's an option I have. But according to John... This love is not optional, it's obligatory. We are under moral obligation to love one another. The expression of our divine duty is we also ought to love one another. So if the greatest commandment in the Bible, or commandments, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, those are the greatest commandments then the greatest sin is not to do so. Our greatest sin that we can commit against anybody is the fact that we don't love God with all of our heart. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. God-like living requires God-like loving. God-like living requires God-like loving. Our love for others should grow out of our love for God and His own love for us. Love is not predicated on, I like that person, so then I'm going to love them. It's not predicated upon an agreement, although that does help. It's through Jesus Christ you can love people with whom you do not agree. Just picture this with me, if you will. In John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. All of the disciples are there. They're all there. And they're sitting around, and Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. By this love, all men will know you are my disciples. And I'm, 
I'm using a little bit of a holy imagination now, but I'm pretty sure that Peter, who is the guy that's, you know, tougher than nails, and he's like, oh, you're going to take the hill. And he's looking over, and he's thinking, as he sees John, he goes, are you kidding me? I have to love that dreamer? He's got his head in the clouds all the time. I'm supposed to love that? And at the same time that Peter's looking at John, John's eyes lock with Peter, and he says, you've got to be kidding me. That loud mouth? I'm going to love that loud mouth? <laughs> and then they're just kind of looking at each other, wondering what Jesus is saying. And right beside Peter is Matthew, and he's looking across the way, and who does he lock eyes with? Thomas. And he says, I have to love the skeptic? Are you crazy? No way. And Thomas is looking right at Matthew, and he's going, there is no way I'm going to love a tax collector. <laughs> so how did they do it? How do we do it? How do we love the way that God's called us to love? I mean, there's a whole lot more to it. Because if I think about, about myself, I, I just can get like, if I go, I'm just, you know, oh. The words that resonate in my mind. If God so loved me. If God so loved me. Do you know who I am? I am about the most selfish person you'll ever meet. There was a self-centeredness to me, self-assertion. I'm self-seeking, self-conceited, self-indulgence, self-pleasing, self-sensitivity, self defensiveness, and I'm also self-sufficient. That's who I am. Before I met Jesus. And because of His great love for me, I really can see myself for who I really am. And the fact is, is that I have died to that self. And when I remember who I am in Christ and that I have died to myself, it is impossible for someone to insult me or to offend me. And the world might have something to say about me that's really bad, but I can guarantee you the truth is worse. Except for the love of God. Because God so loved me. Now I know there's a question floating around out there. And some of, them, some of you are probably thinking it right now. Can you love someone you don't like? Can you love someone you don't like? Well, I'm going to tell you the answer is really easy to this. Because... You do it all the time already. You just don't know you do. Sometimes you feel foolish. And sometimes you just downright feel stupid. 
And there are times when you're a, you know, you're a little bit asinine. And there are times that you would have to admit you're wicked. And guess what? We still love ourselves. We don't like ourselves, but we still love ourselves. And so what it is is that those people that we don't like, we can love them the same way that we love ourselves when we don't like ourselves. God sent this love letter in the person of his son, Jesus. And this is how we know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God not, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is the love of God for you. God's love for us is so great that he overcomes all the many reasons he, he would give for not loving sinful people. The question for us this morning is, will we overcome our petty reasons for not loving one another? If God overcame all the things that would keep him from loving us. Do you think we can come to the place where we're going to get over our petty little issues in our life and follow the command of Christ to love one another? You know, here's the interesting thing to me, and this is what I'm going to close with. So just in case you were looking at your watch, I'm closing. Do you know what the word amateur means? Amateur literally means a lover. So when you think about an amateur person who plays sports, an athlete, an amateur athlete, they play the game because they love the game. They don't go out there and do it. They're not doing it for money. They're not doing it for fame or glory. They love the game so they go and play the game. They're not professionals. When it comes to loving, we should be amateurs, not professionals. Professionals don't much care for the screaming or the hugging or the crying. Amateurs do. It's the cost of living with those you really care about. It's the expression of God's love through you to others. So I think if I were to sum this whole thing up, there are two things I would say to you this morning. There is no sin that you've committed that is beyond the love of God. And you can't do anything to get more of God's love, and you can't do anything to get, to get less of God's love. You've got all of God's love. You're not, you, you don't need to ask God for more love. He's going like, that's impossible. I can't give you more love. You've got it all right now. So, if you've got all of God's love, then love like an amateur. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you became 
the propitiation for our sins, that you appeased the wrath of God by going to the cross, that you paid a debt that we couldn't pay. And there isn't anything we've done that has put us outside your reach. You love us in spite of us. And so simply you're asking us today is to express the love that you've given to us, to others. Help us to be amateurs at loving, at being Christ followers. We do it for the love of Christ, and we love others. Encourage our hearts today to love one another as we should. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.